So my voice held up this morning. Hopefully it'll hold up tonight. I'm at the, I think I'm at the tail end of a cold. Uh, I mean, I know I was sick, but um, you know how towards the end, it, sometimes it lingers and you think, well, maybe I'll be better tomorrow and it's still there. So hopefully I'll be better tomorrow. <laughs> But if my voice goes completely out, then we'll just end early and go home. <laughs> so um, I'm going to rely on the amplification. Nonetheless, <clears throat> turn, turn your Bibles to Psalm 7. Psalm 7. I'm going to read the psalm and then we'll pray and get into it. O Yahweh my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Yahweh my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to him who is at peace with me, or have plundered my adversary without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the, down to the ground, and cause my glory to dwell in the dust. <clears throat> Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the fury of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the congregation of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. Yahweh judges the peoples. Give justice to me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end. But establish the righteous, for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and prepared it. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and gives birth to falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own skull. I will give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at the psalm of David, please guide us. Please direct us. Open our minds to understand and our hearts to receive your word, to uh, glean principles of wisdom and uh, the implications and applications of it. Please guide us. Please guide me. I pray that um, my voice would hold up and that you would speak through me for the benefit of your people and for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, how we speak to God and how we speak of God says a lot about what we think of God. And it's a prime indicator of what we know about God. Um, this famous quote from A.W. Tozer that... Um, Many have quoted from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which is a 
small little book on the attributes of God. I, I highly recommend it if you've never read it. But in the beginning of that book, in the beginning of the first chapter, he says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's the most important thing about us because God is, in a sense, the most important, and it's kind of hard to say thing, but being, uh, there is. Uh, it, all of creation is about God. It's for his glory, and, and we are created as worshipers. And so we can only worship rightly according to um, our thoughts and how we think rightly about God. And so what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And certainly we spend our lives as believers growing in our understanding of God. And, and in a sense, uh, even in eternity, we will continue to grow in our understanding of God. But we are worshipers and we are called to worship God. And so it's vitally important what we think about God. And here, as in all of David's psalms, he speaks to God, not only in response to his circumstances, but also, and most significantly, in response to what he knows about God. And because the psalms are divinely inspired scripture, what David says to God in his psalms are not only what he thinks and knows about God, but what is true about God as well. And oftentimes, in our culture, even in the church, we hear sayings about God that aren't exactly true. Um, and even in evangelism, as we uh, shrink back from sharing uh, the hard truths about God, we might say certain phrases like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And for most people, that is not true at all. Because... His plan for their life is judgment. David speaks about that here as he's in this uh, predicament of enemies um, slandering him, uh, surrounding him. We don't know the exact circumstance. We, we, we do see this superscription as, as some of the Psalms have these words at the top, which is, are also inspired, a shigion of David which he sang to Yahweh concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, the troubling thing is no one really knows what Shigion is. <laughs> There's people that say different things, but at the end of the day, no one's certain. So that doesn't really help us. Uh, the people, the original audience knew. They knew, so it helped them. It's probably some musical term. It's probably a type of song. And then even Cush, a Benjamite, that doesn't tell us a whole lot because this is the only place we hear this, this, uh, his name and the tribe he's from. Um, some have uh, speculated that perhaps um, this was, uh, because Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, that perhaps this was one of those times in which David was on the run from Saul, which is um, highly likely. Um, uh, because um, many of the Psalms, he was either on the run from Saul, um, uh, the Philistines were chasing him, or Absalom. Um, but that could be the circumstance. Nonetheless, he is, um, in a sense, being slandered 
Um, he's being threatened, and there is real threats here. And so in this psalm, <clears throat> we're going to look at it. It's pretty much in two uh, stages or two parts, um, and it's really two expressions of David while he's in the midst of these imminent threats and continual slander from his enemies. So we'll see two expressions here as he cries out to God, two expressions which, in a sense, we should practice as well when we find ourselves being unjustly criticized, slandered, or assaulted. And so the first expression we'll see is David's cry to God. And then the second one we'll see is David's confidence in God um, as he asserts who God is. Uh, but first, David's cry to God and <clears throat> in verses 1 to 9. And as he cries out to God, he does so in uh, three parts or three stages. We'll see his plea for deliverance in verses 1 to 2, his proof of blamelessness in verses 3 to 5, and then his petition for justice in verses 6 to 10. First, his plea for deliverance as he starts. He says, O Yahweh, my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. He begins his plea by expressing, in a sense, his complete dependence on God as his only hope. That, that God is his only hope, and, and he expresses that to God, in a sense, honoring God, glorifying God, that you are my refuge, my strong fortress. Uh, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. He, he expresses his complete dependence on God, that, that um, only God can really save him, can help him. And he justifies this plea for deliverance by the danger of his predicament. In verse 2, he says, lest he tear my soul like a lion, his enemy, um, probably Cush the Benjamite, but also all those with him, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. This, this picture of <clears throat> a ravenous lion, a wild lion, just um, tearing apart its prey. As in many um, Old Testament passages, we get this picture of a lion. A lion as a dangerous animal uh, or a formidable foe. Or even as the Lion of Judah as, uh, is attributed to Christ. But he, there, there's this argument here. As if um, he's saying, God, I, I've placed my complete hope in you. Because my circumstances justify it. You and you alone are my only refuge. And if you don't deliver me, I will be torn apart. There will be no one else to deliver me. Um, it's almost like he's saying um, he's between a rock and a hard place. He's in a situation which only God can justify. Only God can rectify, rather. Only God can uh, save him now. This is a, a similar argument he's, he used in, in Psalm 6. In verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 6, he uses a similar argument for uh, 
redemption, for deliverance, for salvation. He says, return, O Yahweh, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness, for there is no remembrance of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? This argument, if you don't save me, then I will be destroyed. And if I am destroyed, then who will praise you? Who will give you thanks? He does the same thing in Psalm 30. In verses 8 to 9 of Psalm 30, he says this, To you, O Yahweh, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Saying, you know, you, you have created me, you've redeemed me to worship you, to praise you. But if I'm destroyed, then I can't do that. So save me. It, it, it's, it's, it's almost like, um, it's, it's kind of like the nuclear option, so to speak. It's like, he could give so many uh, reasons for God to, to save him. Um, but in essence, he goes back to the reason for which he is created as a worshiper. The reason for which he is redeemed as a worshiper to give praise to God, to worship God. And he's saying, if I'm destroyed, then I can't do that. So deliver me. Heman the Ezraite, he uses the same argument in Psalm 88. In verses 10 to 13, he says, Will you do wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be recounted in the grave? Your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be known in the darkness? And your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But as for me, O Yahweh, I have cried out to you for help. And in the morning, my prayer comes before you. I come before you because you're my only hope. You're, you're the only way out of here. And, and, and if you don't deliver me, if you don't save me, if you don't rescue me, then I will be destroyed. I will be torn in, in pieces. And so he cries out to God. He gives his plea for deliverance. And then second in this cry, the second part of this cry is his proof of blamelessness. His proof of blamelessness. Oh, Yahweh, my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to him who is at peace with me, or have plundered my adversary without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the, down to the ground and cause my glory to dwell in the dust. He, he presents his proof of blamelessness, that, that he is, in a sense, he's in this predicament, but he doesn't necessarily, he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve the slander. He doesn't deserve the accusations or the criticism or the threats which are coming his way. And he says that in the beginning of verse 3, O Yahweh my God, if I have done this, this, speaking about um, all the things he's being accused of, all the things he's being slandered for. And then he goes on to kind of put forth his his proof of blamelessness, um, not sinlessness, uh, but blamelessness. This, that, that term that is used throughout uh, the scripture to uh, point to, in a sense, an external righteousness or um, just a good reputation. As far as, as everybody knows and as far as it is within my power, 
I have not done anything wrong. He's, he, he doesn't say he's completely sinless or it doesn't point to the fact that someone is pure in all their thoughts and motives. But for the most part, externally, there, it, it points to or refers to a person of high character and morality, blameless. No one can point blame at him. He has, in a sense, examined himself to see if he is guilty or deserving of the slander and assaults against him. And then he also, to prove his blamelessness, he submits himself to God's examination and his perfect justice. This is a, a similar argument that, that Paul makes um, to his, uh, his critics um, as he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4. And you can read this in 1 Corinthians 4. He's, he's in a sense defending himself as an apostle that he has not acted or preached in, uh, uh, in an unworthy manner, um, but with all integrity and righteousness and uh, in, in, um, honesty. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, let a man consider us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the, hidden, the things hidden in the darkness and make manifest the motives of hearts. And then each one's praise will come to him from God. He, in a sense, does what David does here. He's saying, I, I'm not conscious of anything against myself. I, 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 don't, I can't think of anything that I've done wrong or said wrong but at the same time, I'm not acquitted because he understands that he, he is also able to be self-deceived, that he doesn't know all the thoughts and intentions of his heart. And so it's quite possible that he has sinned, and Paul knows he's a sinner, just as, as David understands right here that it's quite possible that he has sinned, it's quite possible that he has done something wrong, but he doesn't see it. He, he, he's examined himself, and then he submits himself to God's examination, his perfect justice. He's, he willingly accepts whatever punishment is due to him. And, and he expresses that. He says, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to him who is at peace with me or have plundered my adversary without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life down to the ground and cause my glory to dwell in the dust. I, I, I'm willing to accept whatever punishment is due me, but I don't, I don't see it. And, and all the things they're saying about me, all the criticisms, all the threats, I, I don't see as if I deserve that. So rescue me. I like what Alan Ross writes in his commentary. He says this, he says, Because he is innocent of the charges, the psalmist is free to appeal for divine vindication. And this is the thrust of the message in the next four verses. That's what he does next is he has 
given his plea for deliverance and then his proof of blamelessness. And then next he gives his petition for justice in verses 6 to 10. And he, he does so because he has, in a sense, searched his own heart, his own mind. He has thought, of, he's thought rightly about this, about whether or not um, his predicament is, is due him, is because of his own sin. Or his own foolishness. And he doesn't find anything wrong. He submits himself to God's examination, his justice, and he willingly accepts whatever punishment is due him. And because of that, he, he then goes on and he petitions God for justice. In verse 6, he says, Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger, lift up yourself against the fury of my adversaries, and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the congregation of the peoples encompass you, and over them return on high. Yahweh judges the peoples. Give justice to me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is within me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. He petitions God for justice, first and foremost, to judge his enemies, to judge his enemies. And it's interesting, after just um, putting forth his proof of blamelessness, you know, there's this, this saying, I, I know many of you have heard it before, that um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, David is almost saying here... Um, my enemy is your enemy if I am your faithful friend. In a sense that I've searched myself. I don't see any injustice. I, I, I believe I'm faithful. And if, if, if I am faithful to you, then these are my enemies coming after me. And if I am faithful to you and I've submitted myself to you, then in a sense, I'm trusting that my enemies will become your enemies and you will deliver me according to your justice. And so he, he prays against his enemies. He, he prays against, against them, asking God to rise up to uh, judge them, to appoint them to judgment, to unleash his fury upon them. And he can only do that because he has first searched himself to be sure that he is in the right. And this is... A concept where, you know, oftentimes in the church and, and throughout church history, and I, I believe many believers, they're reluctant to pray imprecatory prayers. Those prayers that we find uh, many times in the Psalter, praying that God would crush the wicked, that he would break the teeth of the wicked, that he would destroy the wicked. Because we know that we are saved by his grace and his grace alone, that we deserve his punishment. And so it's kind of hard for us to turn around and, and call God to uh, crush the wicked. But we can pray those prayers because God is angry with the wicked every day, he is just and he is holy. We can pray for his justice to be unleashed. But we add a caveat to that. 
as David, in a sense, does in verse 12. If a man does not repent. We, we pray that the wicked would repent. We pray that God would have mercy and that he would change their hearts. But nonetheless, we don't want their, their wickedness to uh, propagate and to continue and to spread. We, we don't want uh, human traffickers and pedophiles to continue to engage in that activity and just threaten and traumatize and assault children. Uh, we, we, we don't want uh, babies to be continue to be murdered every day in the abortion mills. We, we don't want a number of, of wicked deeds and acts to go and continue unpunished. We want God to check that, to, in a sense, stop it. And part of that is praying against those organizations and those people and those nations and those rulers who are promoting this wickedness. And we pray, God, break the teeth of the wicked, destroy them, stop them, deliver the, the innocent, especially those young children all around the world who are experiencing oppression at the hands of wicked people. And so we can pray these imprecatory prayers, but we should have a caveat as David does in verse 12, if a man does not repent. We, we do pray that they would repent, but we also pray that they, their wickedness would stop and that if they do not repent, that they would be judged. This is what David says, prays to his petition for justice and uh, to judge his enemies, that God would judge his enemies because he is, in a sense, the, the judge of all peoples and he will judge them. Verses 7 and 8, let the congregation of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. Yahweh judges the peoples. There is a judgment. It has been appointed unto man once to die and after that comes judgment. There is a final judgment, but there's also judgment in this world. And we pray for that. We pray that righteousness would flourish, which is, in a sense, part of David's petition as well. In verse 8, Give justice to me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My shield is with God who saves the upright. There's, in these few verses, there's this concept of righteousness over and over again. We see that David's desire is for justice, for righteousness, to flourish. I like what one commentator writes. He says this, that, David's confidence in the divine judge is the backbone of Psalm 7. As this truth grips him more and more, he will move from a tense anxiety to a transcendent assurance. He shows his confidence in the divine judge that his judgment is perfect as he is perfect. He just prays that his judgment would be unleashed, that he would bring justice down now. Which brings us to David's second expression in this psalm. We've seen his cry to God, and now we see David's confidence in God. 
He cries out to him for deliverance, and then he expresses his confidence in God in verses 11 to 13. And that's first by his proclamation of God's justice. He says, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and prepared it. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. He proclaims God's justice, his justice, which is based on his perfect judgments that only God can judge perfectly, which is in a sense why he has submitted himself to God's examination and his justice in verses 3 to 5. But now he calls upon God's justice. He proclaims his justice based on his perfect judgments, his perfect attributes of holiness, of, of perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge, uh, and the fact that he will bring everything into judgment. He will right every wrong. So he proclaims that. But he also, in, in proclaiming God's justice, he also proclaims the fact that God is angry at sin. He is a God who has indignation every day. He's angry at sin, and not just at sin, but he's also angry at unrepentant sinners. And third, he is fully ready, willing, and able to judge them. Uh, David paints this picture of God as a divine warrior. He has prepared all his weapons, all the, the weapons of warfare in that day and age. He's sharpened his sword. He's bent his bow. It's pulled back. He's prepared it. He has deadly weapons. He, he makes his arrows fiery shafts, not just sharp arrows, but uh, flaming arrows. And he's ready. He's ready, he's willing, and he's able to judge them. There's this term in the military, in our military, of... Um, different uh, postures of uh, um, holding your weapon. And one of those postures is keeping your weapon at the ready. Keeping your weapon at the ready. That means it's out, your hands are on it, there's a round in the chamber, you're ready. And within a half a second, you can bring that rifle up to your shoulder and discharge it and kill somebody. Your weapon is at the ready. This is in a sense where, where God, his, his weapons are at the ready. There's also this, this sense of um, the bow being taught and pulled back. And, and you know, in, in that day and age, they, they didn't have compound bow, bows. They, they the, the, the tension did not release. It was there. It was there ready and just at, at any second could let go. And release his fiery arrows. And there's a sense that his justice is only tempered by his perfect patience and forbearance. That's the only thing that keeps him from unleashing his justice on his enemies is his perfect patience and his forbearance. Peter speaks about this. In warning mockers in his uh, second epistle. Turn there for a moment. I just want to read this, <clears throat> this passage as Peter is addressing 
um, false teachers and those believers who are being persecuted and, and teaching them how to endure persecution, but um, also those uh, mockers and false teachers and those who would persecute them. And in 2 Peter 3, he says this about God and about his judgment. He says this, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere, sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But... The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be found out. There's a judgment. There's a judgment that is being reserved not only for sinners, but in a sense for the creation itself. That that in a sense, uh, all of it will be destroyed. And be made new. And the reason why God has not done it yet, has not returned yet, is because he is patient. He's patient. He doesn't wish for any to perish. He does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, as Ezekiel says. But he desires that all would come to repentance. But he also knows that most will not. And he's, in a sense, withholding his final judgment until that last person comes to faith. And then his judgment will be unleashed, as we read about in Revelation. And he he brings up here, Peter brings up the flood. Because the same, in a sense, the same thing happened to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. And the people mocked him and didn't believe him and didn't listen to him. And yet... The day came when the rains fell and the flood came and they were destroyed. So God here, as David says, he's ready and willing and able to unleash his judgment. But his judgment, his justice is only tempered by his patience and forbearance. Not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. David proclaims God's justice. And then second, we see uh, as he asserts his confidence in God, we see his proclamation of God's justice. And then second, his pronouncement of the wicked's judgment. 
his pronouncement of the wicked's judgment, verses 14 to 16. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and gives birth to falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own skull. He pronounces the, the wicked's judgment, the, 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 the judgment that is coming to them, the judgment that they deserve. And, and he begins with this pronouncement by explaining and proclaiming the depth of their wickedness. Verse 14, he says, he travails with wickedness. This term travail, uh, I had to look it up in the English dictionary. It, it means to struggle, to strive, to work hard at something. And he's in a sense saying, the, the wicked, he, he works hard at wickedness. He toils at his wickedness. And, and he not only toils at wickedness, because he loves it, because that's what he is, but he also reproduces it. He conceives mischief and gives birth to falsehood. Because he's wicked, he reproduces wicked. Everything about him, from the core of his being outward, um, everything he, he lives, eats, breathes, reproduces wickedness. David pronounces that. That's why he deserves judgment. And not only judgment from God in the life to come, but in a sense because of his own wickedness and foolishness, uh, there is a sense of this, this natural consequences as well in verse 15 that they dig their own grave. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. This, this picture of digging a pit as a trap for somebody else. Maybe on the, the, the highway or the roadway. Um, you know, you've seen those, a lot of times you've seen it in cartoons where they dig the pit and then they cover it up with a blanket and some leaves and then someone comes along and this is what, the, this is a picture. But then he falls into the hole he made himself. His wickedness returns upon his own head. His mischief returns upon his own head. His violence will descend upon his own skull. Their own wickedness, in a sense, will be their judgment in this life, but then in the life to come as they will be judged for their wickedness if they do not repent. And then David, in proclaiming God's justice and then pronouncing the judgment of the wicked or the wicked's judgment, he then completes this psalm, ends this psalm, with his profession of redemption. His profession of redemption. I will give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. And this last verse is exactly where he expresses his greatest confidence in God. Because it's, it's all in the future. He, he cries out, he begins this, this psalm by crying out to God as if he is, is in the worst possible predicament. He's between a rock and a hard place. There, there's no one to deliver him. He can't figure this out by himself. He can't uh, deliver himself by his own wisdom or his own strength or his own power or his own resources. He cries out to God, but then at the end, 
he displays this sense of great confidence that God will deliver him, that God will redeem him. And not only will God deliver him, but then he will then give thanks to Yahweh and will praise him. He pronounces a future thanksgiving based on a future redemption. This is this sense of it's already a done deal. It's just a matter of time. I will give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness. He, he then not only pronounces this future thanksgiving, but he qualifies this future redemption according to God's righteousness. Not, not in a sense because of his own righteousness, even though he professes his blamelessness, but it, it's all according to God's righteousness. That God is a righteous judge who has indignation every day and he will judge the wicked. But he will also deliver his people. So he pronounces a future thanksgiving based on a future redemption. Then he proclaims a future praise based on his future redemption. At the second half of, of verse 17. He says, and, and will sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. He says, I will give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. This reminds me of uh, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, which is a pair, and, and many believe that was um, maybe originally written as one psalm. It's a psalm where I go to... Um, in discouragement, uh, many of pastors and counselors have um, used those psalms, Psalm 42 and 43, to counsel somebody in despair or discouragement or depression. It's a great psalm to go to. And there's this phrase that is repeated over and over again. I, I, I like how the ESV translate it, translates it. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And the phrase that is twice in Psalm 42 and then in Psalm 43 at the end, the, the psalmist there is speaking to himself and to his own soul. Why are you worried? Why are you in despair? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. God will deliver me and then I will praise him. As God says in Psalm 50, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That's the way it works. That God is our redeemer. He's our deliverer. He's our savior, not ourselves. He is the one and only savior, not only in a spiritual sense, but in a physical sense, in a natural sense as well. He is our deliverer, our savior, our redeemer in as we call upon him, as we recognize our own predicament, either naturally, physically, or spiritually as sinners, and we humble ourselves before him and call upon him, then he is pleased to deliver us. And as he delivers us, then we praise him and we thank him. That's how our relationship works with God. He is our redeemer and our deliverer. And this is what... what David does, this is his, 
his expression of confidence in God as his redeemer. He focuses his future praise towards, in a sense, not only God, but the reputation and renown of God. As he says, I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. It's not just the fact that he will praise God for delivering him, but he will praise him in such a way that the peoples will know about him, that his name will spread, his name will be glorified amongst the peoples. I couldn't help but think about Job as I was going through this psalm. And most of Job's predicament is in that day and age, there was this principle of retribution, that you reap what you sow. And that's, in a sense, what Job is wrestling with. That Job is blameless. He's righteous. And yet, he doesn't see, as many have said, Job didn't have the... the um, he didn't have the privilege of seeing Job chapter 1. <laughs> so he didn't know what was going on from a spiritual, divine, supernatural perspective in the, the, the um, contest between God and Satan. And so he's trying to figure out all the whole time, did I do anything wrong? I, I, I can't see anything that, that I've done wrong. Same thing that, that David is saying in Verses 3 to 5. I, I don't see anything. Why is this happening to me? But in the middle of Job, he says this to his friends who are, in a sense, adding insult to injury by saying, well, Job, you, you must have done something wrong. This is clearly a miraculous affliction. And so you must have done something wrong. But he retorts, he, he rebukes them, he, he calls them, and he says, uh, in Job 19, in verse 25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will rise up over the dust of this world. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall behold God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. And he places this complete hope in the midst of this horrible, horrendous um, trial and affliction, and not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually he, he places his hope in the fact that he has a redeemer and his redeemer lives and his redeemer will redeem him and he will see him face to face in the flesh this is where his hope is this is where david's hope is that he will give thanks to yahweh he will sing praise to his name because he trusts that whatever may happen between now and then, um, he, will deliver, he will be delivered. He will be saved. He will see God. He will yet again praise him. Alan Ross, um, one of the main commentators that I look at um, for the Psalms, he's, he writes this. <clears throat> he says this, this psalm could be summarized as follows. The people of God who walk in their integrity may pray with confidence for the Lord to vindicate them by turning the malicious schemes of the wicked back on the wicked themselves. 
the application for believers is to be sure to walk in integrity, leaving no reason for the ungodly to accuse them in an effort to destroy them. As they live righteously and from time to time face such malicious attacks, they can pray with confidence for the righteous judge of all the earth to vindicate them and destroy the threat. In essence, what he's saying is, in the midst of slander, in the midst of, of criticism, in the midst of assaults or being sinned against, cry out to God, but also examine yourselves to be sure that, number one, that you are in the faith, that you are right with God spiritually, but also that you are walking rightly with God, that you are walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, if you have been called, if you are one of his, if you have repented from your sins and believed on him for salvation, then trust in him, search yourselves, and if you don't find anything to accuse yourself, then you cry out to God to deliver you, to judge the wicked. And this is not just a cry for yourself, but something that you could also pray for other believers as well, especially those in the midst of persecution, that God would crush the wicked, but also that the wicked might see their own wickedness and by God's grace, repent and turn. These are strong words concerning God and his justice that he not only hates the sin, but he hates the sinner as well. And he hates them with a perfect hatred unless they repent, unless they turn. And if they don't turn, they will be judged. And that is ultimately part of our hope as we walk about in this broken, sin-cursed world, that there is a sense that we all cry and we all yearn for justice. And even unbelievers who have not come to faith, there is a sense that they long for justice in this world. It's just a simple fact that they don't understand or they've yet to come to the place where they understand where they see that they also deserve justice. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a just and righteous God, that you will bring every act into judgment. We thank you that for most of us here, we have escaped the judgment that was due to us through the cross of Christ that he bore that judgment for us who have repented and believed upon him. Yet, Lord, we know that there's some here that have yet to do that. We pray that you would prick their consciences, work in their hearts and minds, help them to understand that there is a judgment coming. And there's only one escape, and that's through the cross of Christ. And for those of us who have escaped judgment through our Lord and Savior, help us to walk in a manner worthy of him and worthy of the gospel to which we have been saved by. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.